Alchin is again going to instruct us on the subject of hope for the depressed. Most of you were here for the first hour. Some of you came in second hour. So just very briefly, Tim is all about uh, biblical counseling. He's trained in that. He runs a biblical counseling center, and he runs an organization that helps churches like ours establish counseling centers. So we've been in contact with him for a number of months on that subject and asked him to come this weekend, talk to our leadership team. We had some training yesterday morning for those who might be interested in being involved in our future center, and we benefited from all of that. And if you were here first hour, you know we benefited from his teaching on friendship through the book of Proverbs. Now, I, I like Tim. I've gotten to know him over these uh, many months. Very glad he's able to come. Uh, one thing a little strange about Tim is uh, he told me that while he's here, he does what I do when I go out of town. I kind of look to see, you know, where am I if I'm in Philadelphia or something like that? What do I, what do I want to see, if possible, while I'm there? He decided that while he's here, he needs to go to a Lions game. And you, and you can tell from the laughter that nobody else agrees that you really need to go to a, to a Lions game. In fact, it, people run contests here where the winner, winner gets two Lions tickets, loser gets four Lions tickets. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, he's, he's from Pennsylvania, and they're at, they happen to be playing Philadelphia. And he's actually a Philadelphia fan, so he's getting a chance to, to do that. So without further ado, we look forward to hearing from uh, Dr. Tim. I, I am from Philadelphia, and uh, I, I won't be wearing blue this afternoon. I wore blue this morning for you guys, but, uh, you know, I'll be changing into green after this game's done. Um, but uh, I'll be depressed if the Eagles uh, lose. I'll just say that. So we're talking about depression, right? So I'm speaking to myself, um, but I'm pretty confident I won't be depressed on the flight home tonight. Just, you know, we'll see. But... Um, Depression's, depression is, is a difficult topic because almost all of us know someone who struggles with depression. And um, most of us at some point in our life have struggled with ourselves. And, and there's seasons where we go through depression. And, and you might be in a season right now where it even took uh, tremendous faith to, to be here this morning. Um, because you're going through uh, difficulty. And I don't know if that's me popping things. Um, but you're going through difficulty, and you're going through uh, a season of depression even, you're, even now. Or perhaps you have a family member or um, others that are struggling with that. And so he, here's my goal this morning. My goal this morning is to speak in two different ways. I, I want to speak to the person who's struggling with depression and talk about how we can find hope in Christ despite our depression and some of the ways that we can respond to difficulties. Um, is that me popping like crazy? Oh, is that him? There you go. Okay. Um, and then, uh, so I want to speak to the person who's struggling with depression this morning. And, and I'm glad that you're here, if that's you. Um, I also want to speak to those who are friends and loved ones, to those struggling with depression. And, and it's an important, uh, crucial topic. I spoke uh, a number of years back at... Um, a church, and it was a fall Sunday like this, and it was a, a fall when they were kicking off their Awana program at their church. And uh, as they looked around the room, there was one thing that was different about this year's Awana program, and it was that the, the commander of 24 years was no longer leading the program because he had committed suicide. And the difficulty that... Um, you can imagine the difficulty that we faced, right? And I asked the pastors of the church, like, like how's the congregation doing? And, and are, are we talking about this? And the reality is that they weren't really talking about it because they didn't know what to say. Here was a man who's well-known in their church, 24 years, their Awana captain, the, the main leader of Awana. And after, at the end of the year, he had taken his life. This depression with, the battle with depression is an important topic because ultimately, when, when, when some get to the absolute point of despair, the, the logical escape seems to be to end it all. Yet, the, the truth is that um, God gives us some resources and God gives us some help and insight so that we can better address and deal with, with that. You need me to switch mics here? Okay. I think I'm just going to hold it. Is that okay? Perfect. 
That way I can walk around a little bit because I like to walk around. But bear with me here. Um, but our, our culture is having a larger conversation about a depression right now, isn't it? Like we're, we're wondering, like, what are the answers? What is, it, what is the hope when you have a friend who's depressed, when you have a friend who's going through difficulty, when, when you yourself are going through uh, depression? And, and depression is very difficult to express and even understand. One of the difficulties, and I counsel with people who are struggling with depression often, is that it's hard to even talk about it. I want you to listen to some of the ways, and some of these are in your notes. And we're going to work through the handout this morning, but I, I provided more notes than probably even usual, because I want you to be able to take these home and kind of mull on it and think about it a little bit. But um, I, I want you to listen to some of the ways that people describe what they're going through. The first one here. Whenever I have a few good months and, I've thinking, and I think I've gotten over the worst of my depression, it silently returns. This isn't a battle I ask to fight. I'm tired of knowing it's always coming back. I wanted to write down exactly what I felt, but somehow the paper stayed empty, and I could not have described it any better. This kind of feels like nothing. It, it just feels like, like I, I can't uh, describe the way that uh, I feel sometimes. No one realizes how strong someone with depression has to be just to do daily stuff like shower, brush hair, or get out of bed. When you're depressed, you don't control your thoughts. Your thoughts control you. I wish people would understand this. Another person said this, I'm not using depression as an excuse. Trust me, I'd give anything to function normally on a day-to-day basis. The last one expresses the despair that often we feel. There comes a point when you no longer care if there's a light at the end of the tunnel or not. You're just sick of the tunnel. Here's the first observation I'm just going to make. That no matter whether you, you are going through depression or whether you have loved ones and friends that are going through depression, I hope we can hear those expressions of heartache and we can feel a sense of compassion. Because we should. We, we, we should feel a sense of compassion for what people who are struggling with depression are going through. And when we hear these stories of people who fight the daily battle with depression, it can feel hopeless when the waves of depression crash. A couple years ago, I was speaking up in Rochester, uh, New York, and the family that I had the opportunity to stay with, um, they lived right on, uh, what lake would that be? Lake Huron, I think? Uh, One of the Great Lakes. You know, you guys are on a Great Lake here, right? But I only know Lake Michigan, okay? Like, um, Ontario. Okay, there we go. Lake Ontario. And, but it was interesting. All night long, you could hear the waves crashing on the shore. And it was a night when there was 40-mile-per-hour winds and, and just wave after wave after wave. Now, the reality is if I went there five years later, what, what changed? What do you think it did last night at that same place? Wave after wave after wave, right? It just it seems to keep coming like it doesn't. And, and, and the reality is that for some, it, it feels hopeless when the waves of depression continue, some bigger and some smaller, but they never seem to end. And, and so um, here, here's another reality when I speak on depression at churches. Many people wonder if the Bible even addresses the issue of depression because they've never seen the word in Scripture, right? And, and so they wonder, like, does, does the Bible even have much to say about depression. And, and here's what is important to realize. That there's major factors that lead to an increase or decrease in depression. But, but they're often related to the level of emotional stress that we feel in our life. So, so there's a connection and a correlation between the level of emotional stressors and how we deal with the emotions and the stressors of life. And, and here's where the Bible does speak to the experience of depression is that it guides us into how to better relate to the world around us and and to manage our emotions and to experience our emotions in ways that honor God and and that are consistent with our faith. Now, we don't do that perfectly, but I want you to see the chart here. There's a chart here, and it's talking about some of the conclusions from some of the recent research that has been done in the area of depression. And so um, here's what we have to realize. When it comes to... 
our inner man, who we are, our spirit, our mind, the things that we think, the things that we love, the the inner man that the Bible refers to as our heart, and our outer man, the body, the, the experience that we have, that whether it's whether you can see some of the experiences on the right here, um, depression affects the appetite. People often go through a period of depression. They, they feel like their appetite is suppressed. Sleep patterns, right? Some people sleep too much or some people can barely sleep at all. They seemingly deal with uh, insomnia uh, night after night. Uh, sexual drives, um, it often suppresses uh, what people would normally think they want to experience. Concentration. Uh, they often would tell you the person going through depression feels like they can't focus at work or they can't focus at school. They can't focus even on uh, conversations that they're having with friends and loved ones. And so concentration is affected. Their energy level is significantly lower during seasons of depression than uh, it is during other times. So depression is felt through the body. But it's also related to the values of our heart. You think about the values that, that what we love, what we love, if you, if you express uh, disappointment because of something that's happening in your life, there, there's, there's a sense of depression that people often feel related to uh, when things that they find valuable are lost. For instance, men who've, who've made a career at a certain company, I remember counseling a man who is, 19, who is at 19 years and 48 weeks four weeks short of fully vested at his pension, and he was laid off by his company. Now, you can imagine the slap in the face that must feel, right? To be 19 years and 48 weeks and be selected by his bosses for a layoff. And the reality is he was insulted, and he was, he was angry, right? And he was depressed. And... Um, by God's grace, another department head at a different part of the company was willing to hire him so he could get on for another year so that he could uh, get uh, the fully vested pension. But, of course, you can imagine he was looking to leave, right? He wasn't looking to tie his long-term future to this company, but it was good for, for him to be able to kind of be able to work that through. But, but I remember just this, this sense of shame and this sense of disgust and this sense of of depression as he sat bewildered, wondering what he should do, right? The commitments of the heart, the commitments that we make, the desires, the things that we love, uh, we no longer seem to have uh, in the same uh, perspective. The the goals that that we we set for life, a person going through depression, oftentimes they they just cease to to care about long-term, they cease to care about long-term goals, Right? Their goal was just to make it through today. My goal was just to have dinner on the table by tonight. My my, my goal was to be able to go to sleep tonight. My goal was to wake up and and hopefully be on work, to work on time tomorrow. Think about their perspectives. And so out of the heart are are these values, commitments, desires, goals, and perspective, and, and through the body. So so the reality is that the values and commitments and desires and goals and perspectives and, and our body are in interaction with one another. So here's, here's the first thing I'm going to say. When we think about the current research when it comes to depression, it, we have to realize this. S- some people have viewed in the past depression like the flu. You just kind of get it, right? Un- it's unrelated to the circumstances of your life. And, and, and here's uh, some of the research that's being done now we recognize that depression is more than biological. Like, it it used to be the assumption was that if we could find the right antidepressant, that we could somehow cure depression. And you find very few psychiatrists and very few mental health professionals who would take that position any longer. That that somehow they think they're going to find a miracle cure and a miracle pill, and that's going to cure depression. Now, antidepressants help many of the people I counsel, so I'm not speaking against antidepressants in any way. Like, it's not something that's a sin to take an antidepressant, and it's not something that you should feel a sense of shame for at all. It's something that you should work with your doctor on. Yet, yet the reality is this, that, that it's more than biological. It simply isn't credible to equate depression and cancer or depression in the flu. Depression involves every aspect of man, both physical and spiritual. Finding a completely physical cure or a completely spiritual cure isn't realistic. 
A good counselor will address both factors that are entirely consistent with a biblical view of life in a fallen world. Our spiritual life impacts the way that we feel. And the way that we feel impacts the way that we interact spiritually. So what's the second conclusion here? The second conclusion is this. That depression likely has multiple causes in most people. So there isn't a simple, single cause about why you might feel depressed. And there's not a simple, single cause as to why your friend might feel depressed. We're more complicated than that. We just are. And so finding simple answers, there isn't the simple answers that can somehow cure depression. But while, while depression has a greater physical cause in some people, it has a greater circumstantial cause in others. And how we respond to circumstances and physical discomfort greatly impacts the intensity and duration of experience we feel. So how we respond to the experiences of depression that we have will, uh, will, will lead to the intensity and the length of the time that we feel depression. And a good counselor helps you evaluate how you respond, right, to life circumstances, and whether those responses are helpful and consistent with what God desires for us. The, the, the third observation that just goes without saying is this. Depressing, depression is confusing and painful for most people. Why should a church care about depression? Why should we even take an hour and talk about depression? But the, the reality is that depression is, is a difficult and hurtful experience for many. And it's, it's one that, that chronically depressed often find a cure to be elusive. It doesn't completely go away in, in the experience of many people. We spend billions of dollars in the United States every year on the treatment of depression. Many billions of dollars. And again, a good counselor, like a friend, brings comfort and connection and gentle correction. We need comfort for our pain and God-honoring perspective for our confusion. And a good counselor cares for you without, without having to know the exact cause of your depression. That even if you're going through depression, it's good to be able to talk with a counselor, to be able to talk with someone, whether that counselor is a wise friend that you trust, or whether that counselor is somebody in an office, or whether that counselor is somebody online, or whether that counselor is your pastor. There's a lot of different ways that you can seek wise counsel, but, but it's confusing and painful. And oftentimes we, we, we feel like we want to be alone during depression, but that's the exact opposite of the way that we need to be. Those who are going through depression need wise friends. The reality is I talked about the story of the, of the Awana commander who took his life after 24 years of leading Awana. And the, the sad part is that w- when they began to talk about it afterwards a little bit, they're like, we saw some of the warning signs, but no one assumed that the Awana commander was that serious. They assumed that he, he uh, was doing okay. And people saw little things, but nobody, nobody had the courage to even have the conversation with him about what he was going through and how they could support him. They just assumed that he was going to make it. And the reality is that we need wise friends, what we talked about in the first hour, who are going to help us. Now, here's, when I'm, when I'm talking with people about depression in my office, I often ask them to, to unpack a little bit of their story for me. And so in unpacking the story, there's five common denominators that oftentimes are prequels to seasons of depression. And, and so, and we would actually, from a biblical worldview, again, we're going to ask the question, what, what does the Bible have to say about, what does the Bible have to say about depression? We're, we're going to understand that the factors that both scientists and, and counselors have found uh, to, to be correlating with depression uh, actually correspond with what we would expect from a biblical worldview. That what they're discovering as they research depression actually confirms what the Bible already teaches, right? And, and that we can trust uh, what the Bible teaches. But the, the first is this. Um, when, when anger, when a man comes to me and he's perpetually angry, and, and he comes with a serious anger problem, and perhaps he comes with an anger problem because he's had a circumstance or a conflict in his life that, that has brought him to a point of, um, you know, needing to talk to someone— um, but you begin to unpack a story of, of anger over a serious length of time. Like his friends would say, anger seems to kind of ooze from his pores. Like, like you can expect an angry and short response from this person. And I would tell you, when anger becomes characteristically um, part of your personality, 
And, and really, there's a spiritual component to, to anger as well. It's not just a personality component. But, but when anger becomes part of your lived reality, it's not long before people begin to report depression. You can't live life as a perpetually angry person without soon facing serious feelings of depression. There's a strong correlation between anger and depression. Second, there's a strong correlation between anxiety and depression. In fact, a lot of the, the medicines that they routinely prescribe for anxiety are also the same medicines that they prescribe for anxiety, right? And so there are some differences, but there's oftentimes a similarity between the medicines that they prescribe. And again, you can't live life perpetually anxious for too long before you can begin to feel feelings of depression. Anxiety focuses you on what? It focuses on what you might lose, right? It focuses you on, on the circumstances and, and difficulties of life. We don't, we don't get anxious about the great things in our life, right? We, we get anxious about the difficulties of our life. We get anxious about whether we're feeling sickness or illness or whether our children are going to talk to us and, and, and going to be coming around for the holidays or whether our finances are in good shape. Those are the things that ultimately we worry about, right? And, and when we live a life of perpetual anxiety, remember what Jesus said. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because today's got enough problems of its own, right? Like worrying about tomorrow accomplishes nothing, in fact, it saps your energy. It destroys your focus. It causes you not to be able to uh, stay in the moment. And when people are perpetually anxious, there's a correlation between anxiety and depression that is clear in, in the science, but it's also completely consistent with what Jesus taught about our anxieties. And the truth is that there's every single one of us in the room struggles with anxiety. There's not a single person in this room who doesn't struggle with anxiety, the speaker included. We all struggle with anxiety. We all struggle with fear. Given the right circumstances, all of us will struggle with anxiety. Now, what's the next level? It, it, the next corresponding emotion is it, just stress. I oftentimes have a man who will call me on, on, uh, for, on Monday morning. And I've seen a pattern with businessmen that they call our office on Monday morning after they've been at the emergency room on Friday night. And they've been at the emergency room on Friday night thinking they're having a heart attack. And they're going through a major health difficulty and they feel like they're having a heart attack. But the reality is that they get told by an emergency room doctor, you're having a panic attack. You're not having a heart attack. That you're, you're, and they begin to unpack their stress level, and you find out that there's a common denominator. They, they typically have worked 70 or more hours that week. Uh, they didn't sleep really well. They didn't have a good diet. Uh, they, they didn't have any margin in their life. They're often going through some personal difficulties in addition to some work difficulties. And so they show up at the ER thinking they're having a heart attack at the end of a really difficult week, and the reality is they're not having a heart attack. They're, they're, dealing, with, they're dealing with a life that has no margins based upon the stress levels that they feel. Now, you think also about soldiers. We often talk about them coming back from the field in post-traumatic stress disorder, right? So, so what does a soldier experience? Well, if you're shot at, what do you feel often? Anger and fear, right? But, but the stress level with the soldiers is so high, right? And you can imagine why it would have to be high, right? It's, it's life-saving that their stress levels are so high. They have to be on guard, right? They have to be ready at a moment's notice. Now they come back and they're starting to live life and you know what, life just feels a whole lot different. They're not living with the same levels of stress and, and they begin to experience what, what we're often calling post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Now, does the, does the stress that we undergo actually change us biologically and physically? Well, it does, right? You can demonstrate differences in the brain and the body and, and the hormone levels and other things in, that are measurable in the body, is this consistent with what we would expect about life in, in God's world, right? Well, yeah, right? It's, it's consistent that, that we would expect that, that when stress is on overload, that, that there might be some feelings of depression that correspond. You, you think about um, another emotion that people often will tell me is part of their experience of depression, and that's the emotions of, of both guilt and shame. Now, the reality is we feel shame. We don't really feel guilt. We, we're either guilty or we're not. 
but we feel a level of shame. Now, we can feel shame because of something that we've done, because we know that we, we've been involved in something inappropriate. I think of a man that I counseled who was fired because he violated a policy related to his workplace, and, and there was a sense of uh, embarrassment and, and shame because he knew that he was violating the policy, and he knew that he was breaking the rules of his workplace, and finally it caught up with him, and his bosses said, okay, we're going to have to terminate you, and you're no longer going to be able to work here, and he had a good job. Right? He had a good job to provide for his family, and, and, and there was a sense of depression and shame that he experienced. Um, on the other side of that is he's looking every day for a job, but having to explain why he was fired for cause. Now, by God's grace, he got him to a better place, but um, it, it created some major difficulties in his family. Now, who else experienced shame? When, when, when you've been through periods of abuse in your life, People who've been abused take on the shame of their abuser. The 10-year-old boy who was abused feels the shame that the abuser should have felt. And so they, they conclude about themselves, I must be a bad boy. I must be someone who is not worthy of being treated with respect and dignity. And, and so they make some conclusions about themselves in the midst of that abuse that, that lead to sometimes a lifetime of shame. I recently had a man who, who, after 63 years, he was in the hospital, and he thought he was dying. And he wanted to tell someone, and I happened to be his counselor, and he hadn't told me the whole story yet. And he called me to the hospital, and he's like, I want to tell somebody before I die about what happened to me as a child. I live with a sense of shame. I don't know what to do about it. And the reality is that it was, it was a vivid image to me of just the way that shame, when we've experienced periods of abuse, and, and in a room this size, I know there's people who've experienced that very difficulty. So, so there's a correlation between the shame that we feel, which what, sometimes the shame is due to our own sin, and, and, and we need to confess it to God, but sometimes the shame we feel is due to the sin of others against us. And, and we need perspective in order to understand how do we deal with shame and guilt? Uh, how do we deal with shame that, that's, that's loaded upon us by others? People sometimes feel shame based upon the expectation of their parents. I thought that you would be an engineer, and you're just a mechanic. You're not, you're not as good as the other kids in our family, right? But you can imagine a sense of shame that some people feel because, you know what, they don't feel as successful or they don't feel as, as good as others in their family. You know what, you're the child in our family who went through divorce. What's wrong with you? Now, that, again, that can be a false sense of shame. It's not a sense of, it's not a God-honoring shame that we feel in that moment. But both, both for things that we've done and for things that others have done to us, we can feel a sense of shame. We don't deal with that sense of shame in the same way. But the reality is that when, when we live with a sense of shame for too long, we begin to feel depression. So depression corresponds with the shame that we feel. Um, the last one is a category I just call broken relationships. So again, as, as I'm talking through the stories of people who have gone through depression, oftentimes they'll talk about broken relationships. Now sometimes it's a broken relationship through death, right? Somebody dies, the, the, the older man who loses his wife or the older woman who loses her husband. And, and there's a sense of that. Or it can be uh, losing a child. But would we expect that death would hurt? I hope we would all say yes, right? It hurts. There's a struggle with death. Uh, and, and so we would expect that we would go through a period of depression. Now, what about divorce? The same way. When people go through a divorce, they often corresponds with feelings of depression. Somebody who was significant to them has rejected them, no longer wants to be with them, and, and they feel the difficulty of divorce. What about, you know, just use the word dysfunction, dysfunctional family, families where, where, where people don't trust one another. Some of you grew up in a family where people just don't trust the word of each other. You're like, okay, when you go home for Thanksgiving, you don't really trust the other people in the room. You don't trust if they're there for your good. You might tolerate them, but you don't trust them. Now, does it make a difference in the way that young people process the world when they grow up in a family that trusts versus growing up in a family that doesn't trust? 
And I would tell you, it makes a major difference in the way that you deal with and the way that you attach to people and the way that you uh, feel a level of security when you grow up in a family that trusts people. And some of you know the blessing of that. And some of you know the pain of not being able to trust even your own parents, not being able to trust your own siblings. You understand that. And and so when there's a period of broken relationships through, through dysfunction, other thing is through distance, when people have a friend who moves away or, or damage. And so broken relationships can lead to a period of depression. Now, we're not always responsible for why relationships break. You can't stop people in your life from dying. You can't stop people in your life from moving, right? You often don't have complete control over your family dynamic and the way that you deal with trust and the way that you can interact with one another. But when you think about this list, anger and fear and stress and guilt and shame and broken relationships, you understand that people who struggle with depression have a story. We all have a story. But, but more times than not, what, what you realize, and I found as I've sat and talked with people struggling with depression, is that they have a story that interacts with some of these elements. And, and so when we wonder, like, how does God speak into the experience of depression? Well, he begins to understand people's story. And he begins to understand the anger and the emotion. And, and, and God cares about these things. And, and he wants us to, to um, experience hope. Now, there's a chart at the bottom that kind of explains a little bit of the experience of depression. It, the slippery slope of depression. I often make this statement when I'm teaching about depression and when I'm counseling about depression. It's this, that depression begins with disappointment. Depression begins with disappointment. You think about anger and anxiety and fear and broken relationships. There's, there's an element of disappointment and discouragement. Now, if we live on a disappointment level for too long, what happens? We move into another phase, and that's discontentment. We begin, begin to become dissatisfied with life. We begin to wonder, like, do, do I need to live like this? Like, is this fair? And, and so discontentment becomes the attitude and difficulty that, that we often um, live with. Now, if it continues, and we're going to look on the next page, uh, we're going to look at kind of how we impact some of these things. But if it continues, it gets to a point of despair, of hopelessness. So if I had to pick a biblical word that, that is most similar to depression in the scriptures, I would pick the word despair. The despair describes the experience of what people ex- talk about when they talk about being depressed. And so if you were to begin to kind of do a, do a word study of the word despair within scripture, you'd realize there's a lot of parallels to the experiences that many people face. Then ultimately, um, if people live with hopelessness and despair for too long, what happens? It moves into um, destructiveness, desperation. And, and so we're going to talk a little bit about some of the destructive responses. But, but I want you to understand that depression begins with disappointment. There's a story that corresponds with, um, there's a story that corresponds with uh, the experience of depression that most people fa- face. And so if you turn the, the next page, you, you, you'll see just this. But recent studies of individuals battling depression have identified that these emotional stressors multiply feelings of depression and trigger waves of depressed feelings. And so we can't effectively deal with depression without evaluating our responses to difficult circumstances and emotional stressors of our life. And the Bible provides much guidance on how to respond better. So what do we have to do? If we're going to deal with depression and we're going to help others with their depression, we have to learn how to deal with the emotional stressors of our life. It's not that we just have to kind of, you know, become uh, weak men and somehow begin to experience all the emotions. And, and, you know, you know, like I think that's the fear sometimes when 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 people hear, well, I got to experience the emotions. But we do have to recognize this, that God's given us all of our emotions for good. All of our emotions, anger and fear and, and guilt and shame, all of these have have a place in the Christian walk. Right. But but, but God says how we respond to them, like how we respond to the emotional stressors makes a difference in the way of of how we deal with depression. Everyone has emotional distressors. And each person has stressors that hurt them and distract them from living a full life as God offers. And so we say this, depression begins with disappointment. 
and our emotional stressors are rooted in a deep feeling of disappointment regarding something we had or lost, or about something we have longed for or never received. And depression is a progression, which left unchecked can go deeper and deeper. And depression benefits from a spiritual response. So here's where our faith makes a difference. I think our faith speaks into our depression. Our faith, our faith challenges our depression. It, it helps us to gain new perspective in the midst of our depression. You, you think about stage one and disappointment and discouragement. What's going on in that? Well, something unexpected and unwanted has occurred. You're going to experience that this week, right? All of us. We'll experience something unwanted and unexpected this week. Perhaps on a minor level, you might hit the train on the way, right? Isn't there like a 40-minute train or something that, uh, that is causing all sorts of headache in town here, right? You're like, okay, you get depressed as you sit at the train for 40 minutes, right? I don't know if I could deal with that, right? I'd be like paying extra taxes for a bridge, right? Uh, do you not, uh, you know, that's what they did in my town. They, they, they put, a, they put a, like a tunnel underneath the, the tracks. And uh, it, yeah, come on, man. Just saying, that's how they solved it in my town, right? Right? And uh, everybody goes to that one road that has the tunnel underneath, but it works beautifully. Just an idea, okay? Uh, I know Illinois doesn't have too many good ideas, but that was one of our good ones, okay? Um, some corrupt politician probably got paid off to, to create it. So, hey, but um, you guys have corrupt politicians in Michigan too, right? Okay? No? No? Okay. Too many of them? Okay. Um, but um, it begins with disappointment, right? And, and so what do we do? If you're a friend of, the bottom part is a, a friend who's trying to understand, will ask questions about the person's struggle, listen attentively to, to the affected goals and desires, and ask about the person's perception of God's role. Like, where does God fit into this? Like, like what, what might God might be doing in this depression and disappointment and this difficulty that you're facing? Now, stage two is discontentment, where there's an unbiblical response to the disappointment, where, where we become kind of angry about the disappointment we're facing. And what, what, what do we do as a friend? Well, we might listen to the, the, what are the rights? I don't deserve to live this way. I heard that this week re- regarding, you know, a marriage. I don't think God wants me to stay in this unhappy marriage. Well, somebody's been ruminating on that for a while, Right? And, and, and truthfully, if you've been married for a while, you've probably thought that thought yourself. Right? It's not uncommon for somebody to think that. Like, I'm not sure God wants me to stay in this. And, and yet, God has something special. Yet, I, sometimes it's interesting. I, I can counsel one couple from hour to hour, and, and they'll have very similar stories, but they have completely different responses to the same stressors. And one's experiencing grace, and one's experiencing judgment. And you're like, if you could see each other, right? If you could see the fact that, that, that two people could respond to the same trial in life completely differently and experience grace, you might not have to experience the same level of discontentment. But listen for what the person has lost. Listen for, for any blessings that have been lost sight of. What, what are the ways that God might help them in this struggle? Stage three is despair. What's going on? The person sees no way out. They're giving up. They're losing hope. Right? What do you do? I mean, you can, you know, some, some medical evaluation at this point can be, can be helpful. Asking about relationships, asking about fulfilling responsibilities and physical activity, listening for unbiblical and unrealistic thinking. And so, last one is just destructiveness. Kind of, there's a deepening hopelessness and a reduced fear of death and harm. And what do you do? Be brave enough to ask questions about suicide. Do you know that most people who are considering suicide want to talk about it? They would love for somebody to talk them out of it. When I first started as a counselor, I didn't believe that. Until I started counseling, believe it or not, I started counseling with pastors who were considering taking their own life. And as a pastor, by God's grace, like I was a pastor for a dozen years before I ever got to be a counselor, but as a pastor, I never got to the point where, you know what, not coming in on Monday via suicide was was something I would ever have considered. Yet, I was blown away. And I ask every pastor now, 
the question, are you considering suicide? And you'd be shocked to know the number of pastors that get to the point of despair and depression that are considering suicide. Now, I, I give that as an example. Like, I don't think your pastor is considering suicide, and that's not, what they, that's not the point that I'm, I'm making. But, but I'm, I, I give it as a point. If a pastor who knows all that he knows can get to a point of, of thinking that suicide is the best option, it can happen to any of us, right? And, and to have a friend who cares and who will walk with you and who will love you through that experience makes a major difference. And um, so ask the question. Ask about loneliness and, and feeling like a burden. Ask about what it would need to change to bring hope and peace. So, um, again, we're, we're going to work through each of these stages and, and Ask ourselves the question, how do we respond well and healthy to depression? Stage one, difficult circumstances lead to disappointment and discouragement. How does Jesus speak into this? John 16, he said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, what? I have overcome the world. That in the midst of the disappointment, Jesus reminds us that you're going to have troubles but th- this world is not the end. Th- this world is, is not what we put hope in. So learning to address disappointment and discouragement is essential. Learning to become a genuine follower of Christ. Now, step two, you think about how, how do we speak into that? Disappointment can lead to discontentment. You think about Philippians 4, 11 to 13. It says this, Not that I'm speaking of need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So he's sitting in prison, writing this. I know now to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, so what do we learn? We, we, we learn to, to address the ruling desires or the things that are most important to us by evaluating them and submitting them to the will of God. This stops the downward progression on the slippery slope, addressing discontentment by, by urging conviction that prompts repentance. We, we can become so desirous of the things in life that don't matter. And sometimes our friends need to bring our eyes back to, back to what's most important. And, and how can you help a friend who's struggling with depression? He's like, you can help him to find contentment with a life that is difficult and different and disappointing sometimes and, and help them to remind them of, of the fact that God is using these things for their good and, and that they can trust him and that you're going to be a friend that walks with him through this. this stage three is disappoint, discontentment can lead to despair. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, Struck down but not destroyed is what 2 Corinthians reminds us. That, that we can deal with the disappointment and difficulty without getting to a point of, of despair. Psalm 69, 19 and 20 says this. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Right, so here he was in the middle of despair, calling out to God because he, he was looking for comfort in the midst of his despair, and he wasn't seeing people around. Right, And the truth is that in the midst of the despair, we need people. We need people who are going to speak into our life. But here's the reality you have to realize. Most people who are at a point of despair aren't going to seek help for themselves. You get that? Most people at a point of despair aren't going to be like, oh, I need to go talk to a counselor. They need wise people in their life to say, you know what, you need to go talk to a counselor. Like, like you, you need to get help. Because they don't recognize at that moment, or they don't even believe at that moment, that help is possible. And, and this is where depression, if it's going to be addressed on a church-wide level, we've got to recognize that we all have to support each other. We have to care for one another. Like, your job might be to walk with a friend and, and get them help to hold them accountable, to get help, and and to address the depression that's going on in their life, the way they've disengaged from from the world around them. Because they don't recognize it for themselves in that moment. 
If you're at a point of despair and depression, you might not recognize the fact that you need to get help. But do people love you? Do the people who love you around you, are they willing to step into the gap? Galatians 6.1 says, like, brothers, you know, you who are spiritual, restore one another, right? Like that, that we would come along and we were, would help people. Stage four is despair can lead to destruction. 2 Corinthians 1.8, for we do not want you to be aware, brothers, of, of the affliction we experience in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened by our strength that we despaired of life itself. When despair is taken hold, this is where you find destructive choices. Destructive choices happen on the other side of despair. And um, you, you want to feel in control and alive again, right? You want comfort and escape. And so um, there's four common escapes that people search for, right? So in the midst of destructive choices that people can find in the midst of despair, there's four common escapes that I want to talk about. The first is escaping a relationship. Sometimes we run to relationships, but sometimes we run from them in the midst of depression. In deep despair and depression, we easily distort what is happening in the relationships around us. The person who's in the midst of depression genuinely feels like people around him don't care about him or her. If you, if you begin to talk with them and listen to their story, they're genuinely convinced that no one around really cares, even though people around might be trying to care for them. But they would genuinely say, like, I don't think anybody in my life cares. I don't think anybody would miss me if I didn't show up to church next week. I don't think if I quit my job that anyone would even notice, right, that anyone would even care. And their mind distorts at this point, right? They're not thinking clearly at this point. But, but, but sometimes they're, they're escaping uh, into... Uh, they're escaping uh, the depression that way. Unhealthy relationships... And broken relationships often occur in the context of depression. The other thing I would say is this. Um, it's rare that I talk to a man who committed adultery who wasn't first bitter and in despair about his marriage. And, and I would say the same for women too. But I, in my context, I talk with a lot more men than I talk with women in that particular context. But I think the female counselors at our center would say a very similar thing. That, that one of the destructiveness... Uh, one of the destructive choices people make in the midst of despair is that they find someone else to be better than their current marriage. Divorce is often de- preceded by depression as well. And, and so people escape in relationships. The, the second one, pe- people escape into, uh, into substances. There's a high correlation between substance abuse and depression, right? And um, we want comfort, and we can find temporary relief in a bottle, pill container, or sugar rush. And these provide only a brief respite from the pain. But we know substances don't work long-term, but the allure of substances is what? Why do people drink, or why do people use pain pills tonight? Because they work tonight, right? In the next four hours, it's going to solve the problem that I want to solve, that I don't want to feel like this. I don't want to feel this pain. And you know what? I know that after a six-pack... I don't feel it anymore. And the reality is that before they were ever devolving into substance abuse, they, they were feeling a level of despair. The, the next one is escaping into suicide. And I've already referenced the, the difficult case that I dealt with a few years back. But one of the aspects about despair is that we often, in Scripture, see it, it, it gets to this feeling of despair of life itself. I remember counseling a young pastor, and I was asking about some of his future goals and, and he kept making the statement, if I have to live past Friday, here's what my answer is. But I don't intend to live past Friday. And, you know, it was, it was obviously a disturbing counseling session. When we, here we are on a Tuesday, and he's basically putting me on a clock and saying, okay, you got three days to convince me that I shouldn't do this. He was, he was a young man who was put on, he was no longer actively pastoring. He had been recently let go because of some of the bizarre behavior he had devolved into. But he was a young, successful 24-year-old youth pastor at a major church holding a significant position, right? If anybody had picked a, if anybody had picked a um, you know, most likely to succeed kind of graduate in his Christian college, he would have been on that list. 
But here he was at a point of despair saying, if I have to live past Friday, here's my answer. By God's grace, he's alive today. And you know what? He's working in business and construction. And, um, and, and God's radically changed him. In fact, I would tell you, he's studying now to be a counselor. He just enrolled in seminary to be a counselor some six or seven years later, right? And, and God, God's given him hope again, and, and God's given him a story to share. And it's an awesome thing that he was able to get the help that he needs, and, and now he's pursuing uh, the opportunity to help others. But the next step can be to contemplate and consider taking one's life, and it's a tragic choice, but one that comes at the end of an exhausting and frustrating search. The last one is just escaping into isolation. Escaping into isolation. The common response to the point of despair is, is the desire to be alone. And so those who are severely depressed often convince themselves that this is the only path forward. They desire help but seem to be too frustrated and tired to seek it. So one of the best things what you, you can do as a friend is to come near and faithfully show concern and care. So when it comes to depression, we can very easily focus on how the body responds to emotional stressors and how the body feels when depressed. However, he, here's my challenge. I, I want us to understand this, that there's a story. And God cares deeply about those who are depressed. And he comes close to those who are depressed. And he cares about you and your depression. And he cares about your friends and your parents and your children and others who are struggling with depression. And he wants you to turn to him and learn and to grow from depression. Depression can destroy us if we let it. Or depression can be something that turns us back to God. That reminds us that God is there and that he cares. And it takes maturity to respond to life's trials. But if you endure with God's help, you continue to mature and become the person that God wants you to be. And we have all the resources in Christ to respond to life's trials. So while we can't avoid all trials, we can grow from them. You get that? You can't avoid all of life's trials, but you can grow from them. And depression is an opportunity for growth, no matter what caused it. And because God has given the resources to respond well. So... Um, I, I hope you have a better understanding of depression this morning. That, that God does, in fact, speak into the experience of depression. That he gives us hope. He also gives us a challenge. You can grow from this. Like, you, you don't have to be uh, living your life at a point of despair. Let me, let me pray real quick to close this out. God, thank you for this opportunity to come together and encourage one another this morning. God, I know that depression is difficult, but you are a good and gracious God. And you meet us there. God, use this time today for good. In your name, amen.